Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is Tom Keeley, the 372nd show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Catherine Rimp. Chair of History Department at the University of Missouri is going to talk to us about the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. The history buff for today's show is Brett Bernard. The show's theme song is Kayla's theme, written and performed by Mark Zaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, David Baker. This is the opening segment of the show, recalled Farouk Danarin, and today we'll be talking about the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment with Dr. Catherine Rimpf, Chair of the History Department at the University of Missouri. First of all, welcome to the show, Catherine. Oh, it's great to be here. Outstanding. We're excited to have you here as well. So let's start out with, with some background. Can you give us uh, a little bit of background on the key events that led up to the ratification of the 19th Amendment? Sure. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that the sort of typical place where historians begin that story is in 1848 with the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention, where there's a discussion about votes for women. Um, another key moment is after the Civil War and the ratification of the Reconstruction Amendments that enfranchised African-American men, um, but not women. And that's a key moment in the, in the women's suffrage movement um, as well, because it kind of divides the movement. And then um, it, uh, it develops over the late 19th into the early 20th century, working on um, getting new states coming into the Union to come in as suffrage states. So a number of the Western states come in with um, votes for women in their constitutions. Uh, and um, but the, the, the movement kind of flounders for a little while and is re-energized in the 19-teens. Um, and then, of course, gets a lot of attention during the First World War, when some suffragists, um, uh, you know, to try try to demonstrate women's um, how important women are to the war effort, and and hope that that will um, lead to more political support for women's suffrage, while other suffragists choose to um, demonstrate in front of the White House against Woodrow Wilson's continued opposition to women's suffrage, and then it's. Um, uh, in, in 1919, when the, um, uh, sorry, 1920, when the 19th Amendment is uh, finally ratified. Okay. Um, to ask a question, uh, were different parts of our nation, uh, either local, county, uh, state, or obviously at the federal level, at odds with um, this amendment? I mean, I know that there are some states that allowed women to vote on uh, local and state issues much earlier than at the federal level. Um, could you give us kind of in a nutshell which states were kind of leading the way and which ones or areas were opposed to it? Yeah, well, I mean, the states that lead the way in coming, in entering, in, in, in having full suffrage rights for um, 
for, for women are Western states. And there's some debate about why that was the case. Places like Utah, Colorado, Wyoming. Um, and I, I, you know, you know, some people would argue that it's, it's because these were, you know, kind of states where um, women had to assume a lot of the, a lot of roles that, uh, that they wouldn't have assumed back back east, and that there was more of a sense of women's equality embedded in um, the, the 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 populations of those states. But to me, the explanation that makes more sense is just that they were writing their constitutions from scratch, and it's easier to include votes for women when you're writing from scratch than to go through the process of amending a constitution that's already in place. So you see it happening first in um, in the Western states, but of course you're absolutely right that there are a number of other um, you know municipalities which will which start allowing votes for women on things like school board elections, um, elections that are for for, for um, you know. In, in, in areas that are understood to be women's purview, right? So it's easier to to get acceptance for the idea that women should be engaged in the masculine activity of voting if it is on behalf of issues that were understood to be part of women's domain, like education of children. Okay. <clears throat> so you mentioned Woodrow Wilson as a... Um sort of an obstacle, an opponent. Who are the other major, major players on each side as this thing is, is heading toward a ratification vote? Well, so, I mean, on, on, the, on, the, uh, on, the, on the suffrage side, I mean, I, I think one of the interesting things about women's suffrage is that it really was a bipartisan um, uh, issue in that you had prominent... You had suffragists in the Democratic Party, you had suffragists in the Republican Party, and you had really powerfully anti-suffragists in both parties as well. Um, so it wasn't a simple thing of, of um, saying, you know, one party is for suffrage and another party is against it, so we are going to... Um, uh, uh, you know, support the, the pro-suffrage party, because there really wasn't a pro-suffrage party. There were individuals. Um, the region of the country that's, that's the kind of the most uniformly opposed to suffrage is, is the South, um, um, although that's not the only source of opposition. Um, but women's suffrage was a really tricky thing in the, in the South, because um, to advocate for voting rights for women in the South was to open up the question of who has the right to vote. And many, um, even though um, black men had been enfranchised with the Reconstruction Amendments, um, for the most part, black men were not able to exercise that right to vote in the South. So there's a, there's a real strong impetus to not open up that question in the South. Okay. Um, well, now that you brought that up, uh, in recent I mean, in the recent year, there have been some historians coming out saying that there was definitely a segregationist movement within the suffragettes themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. There are ladies that had come out and pretty much said that, yes, 
that uh, women should vote, but they should be, uh, they were accused it should just be white women. Uh, and there's been a lot of discussion about that in the last yep. couple of months on this 100th anniversary. Uh, what is yep. your take on this, if I may ask? Oh, yeah. Well, so, it's, I mean, it's absolutely true that there were um, women suffragists and prominent women suffragists who, white women suffragists, who would have been perfectly content to um, ratify or, or to support an amendment that enfranchised only white women if that's or only native born women also, if that was what it took to get suffrage passed. So I think you have a range. Um, and I, I would mention like four categories of suffragists. One would be the African American women who were um, uh, or, or African American women who were organizing in places like Chicago um, on behalf of women's suffrage for decades and, and, and really were very powerful force in support of voting rights for, for women. You have um, uh, white women who supported suffrage and who had a more universalist approach, who, who really felt that a suffrage movement should include all um, women. You had women suffragists who were quite clear that they would only support it if it enfranchised white women only. And then you had other suffragists who were, um, you know, kind of thinking about this pragmatically and strategically and who really their main concern was enfranchising white women. They were fine with having getting the, the vote for, for all women if that were possible, but they were also really in the end, okay with selling out women of color if that's what it took to get those Southern um, senators on board. So one quick note. So you're saying that was regional, too, in a lot of ways? Um, well, so so the, the movement itself it was happening um, on two tracks, right? There was the one, one track was to work at the state level and to keep bringing states in um, – uh, or, or keep enfranchising women one state at a time, right? You know, eventually trying to get to a kind of critical mass and get all all states to have women's suffrage that way. And then the other strategy was to work on a federal amendment, right? A federal amendment that would then enfranchise women even in those states that didn't um, uh, yet allow it. And they were states. They were they were strategies that kind of reinforced each other because the more states that enfranchised women, the more members of Congress you had who had gotten to Congress having been voted in by voters that concluded women. Right? They're responsible to women constituents. So the hope is that the more the more senators and representatives you have in Washington who are beholden to um, women constituents, the more sympathetic Congress is going to be towards women's suffrage. So there, there were two strategies that went hand in hand, and getting, but ultimately getting the federal amendment ratified, um, you know, was going to need some support from states that did not have really strong suffrage records like in the South. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. KALA.
KLA 88.5 FM, the radio station with the most diversity in the Quad City region. Jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop, Spanish and Hispanic programming, gospel, new rock, oldies, news, and shows addressing local community issues, and the world's best in entertainment and news from Public Radio International. Here's something different on KALA 88.5 FM, the most diverse radio station in the Quad City region. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Catherine Rimp, Chair of History Department at the University of Missouri. Uh, Dr. Rimp will be talking to us about the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Our history buff for today's show is Brett Menard. Uh, Brett, since you are a history teacher, um, would you like to ask uh, Mr. Dr. Rimp a question? Yes. Yes, I would. Um, so we talked a little bit about the, the lead up to ratification. So what political issues were women most involved with? What, did they, what were they using their new franchise to advance or to prevent? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a great question, because in the, the lead up to, you know, in the arguments that suffragists were making for why women should be enfranchised. And, and I would say as an aside that I think today it's real. I mean, I certainly find this with my students. It's really hard for a lot of people today to understand and really even believe how deep the opposition to women's suffrage was at the time, right? This is really, this is something that both men and women, there was a lot of opposition. And so suffragists had to be persuasive and so one of the things that they did is the suffrage movement by the 19-teens was really linked to the um, uh, progressive movement of, of, the, of the time um, in, in, in that era. And um, there, was, there were these arguments that if you enfranchise women, then it's going to help um, bring about a lot of other kinds of policy changes because of an assumption that women were more inclined to support things like um, uh, uh, stamping out alcohol abuse, um, creating or beautifying cities, um, support for um, education, um, opposition to war was a, was a big one, kind of the assumption that if, if women get the right to vote, then We'll be able to ban, you know, we'll be able to end war in the future. Um, and so there was a, a kind of assumption that was promoted by suffragists that, um, you know, if you, so if you um, support social reform, you should support women's suffrage because women will help bring about these um, uh, reforms. And it was also an, 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 um, an argument that was made by opponents of suffrage, too, that, that if women get the right to vote, they will all vote as a block, and that will be very disruptive to American politics. Now, in the end, of course, um, women didn't vote as a block, and so they don't have all of the reforming impact that supporters had hoped that they would have or all of the disruptive impact that opponents thought that they would have. 
but um, uh, there was certainly those ar- there were those arguments made during the during the campaign. Catherine, since you've kind of brought up ideas, um, what kinds of of responses were religious communities uh, giving? I would imagine they would have been divided as well in terms of of support for the the 19th Amendment. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of what was going on from the pulpit? Yeah, sure. Well, so in the, I mean, certainly in earlier periods, late 19th century, you know, there were there were plenty of um, religious groups that um, really made you know made made the arguments that that women should, women should not speak in the church, women should not speak in public, um, and that uh, politics was not something that women should do. Um, but women really, you know, there were there were many women activists um, who came from those kinds of traditions who were still able to. Um, make the argument that um, there was a role for them in public life because they stood for reforming society in godly ways um, and that God wanted them to um, defy the ministers in their churches or defy people in their own families and go out and campaign for suffrage because they um, cared so passionately about the 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 the, the classic example of this is um, uh, temperance um, that women had such an important calling from God to uh, stamp out alcohol abuse that they needed to do these unconventional things and um, speak in public speak speak um, in favor of temperance and ultimately in favor of suffrage again because of the idea that women had the right to vote they could help shut down the saloons. Um, let's talk about uh, the suffrage movement pretty much in the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, I'm asking you to get a little bit out of bounds with the uh, United States, but there was also before World War One a pretty prominent movement along with the labor movement in Europe at the time. And England had a, a series of suffragette uh, protests that received international news, correct? Absolutely, and um, uh, you know, although those 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 movements they they develop um, independently, they also are aware of each other and um, exchange ideas. And you know, one of the most prominent American women suffragists, um, Alice Paul, she was an American woman who um, was living in England and became involved with. Um, the movement there, and then brought some of the more radical tactics from England back to the um, to the United States. Okay, Brett. So, what were some of the tactics that they used? Right. So, one of the ideas that Alice Paul brought with her from Britain was the idea that you um, attack the party in power. Right. So, if women don't have the right to vote, it's the fault of the party in power, because the party in power had just has the power to give women the right to vote. And it was a strategy that made political sense in um, the context of Britain, really didn't make a lot of sense in the context of the United States, because we don't have sort of kind of strict platform parties, right? It's so diffuse. So that Alice Paul, um, in the 1916 election, she was urging her supporters to oppose Democratic candidates all across the country at all levels of office because Woodrow Wilson was a Democrat who opposed 
suffrage. But in fact, there were many, many Democrat, Democrats who did um, support suffrage. So it was kind of a strange strategy. But it was also Alice Paul's group that was protesting in front of the White House and during, during the war and holding up signs, criticizing Wilson and um, kind of attacking him for hypocrisy, for claiming that he stood for um, promoting the, you know, national sovereignty and democracy in Europe when he didn't support women's suffrage. And they marched there. They got arrested. They went on hunger strikes. And that was a lot more, those, those tactics were a lot more radical than women suffragists in the United States had used up to that point. And the movement was really divided as to whether or not they were a good thing or not. Okay, Catherine, since we've talked about strategies for suffrage, um, what kind of strategies were used uh, against suffrage? And I'm, and I'm really kind of thinking of, you know, how far were authorities willing to go in order to sort of put this, uh, put this thing down or, or eliminate these troublemaking women or whatever? Um, so what kinds of things were used to, uh, to sort of defeat uh, the suffrage movement? Well, I mean, there were um, organi- organizations that um, formed to oppose women's suffrage, uh, organizations of women, women who there was a, an organization called the National Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage. It's a terrible acronym. It doesn't <laughs> form a nice little word that you can say. But, um, you know, and so these were these were women who lived in who um, maybe in, in if they lived in a state that was going to have a state referendum on whether or not to enfranchise women um, lobbied against it, um, and they were they were powerful and they were effective. Um, so there were those kinds of t- tactics. There were there were the tactics of arresting the suffragists outside of the of the White House. I mean, I would say that was more of an effort to stop the stop them from embarrassing the president, um, you know, more than anything else. But um, uh, you know, the the usual kinds of things: lobbying of um, senators and state legislators. Okay. Right. Where uh, where did they seem to have the most setbacks you said the south was the most resistant to them overall yeah. but was there a ebb and flow of gaining some ground and then losing it or i mean there was there was a there were there were the um you know the 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 initial flurry of the west of western states coming into the union with these um constitutions that enfranchised women and then a really a lull took a really long time before the the referendum start being successful and that's really getting into the 19 teens um, with the war and the war really was uh, a challenge um, for suffragists because it, it, I mean we see this in any kind of war right if you have a kind of an ongoing social issue that people are campaigning on there can be a lot you know and then a war breaks out a national emergency there can be a whole lot of pressure to stop your campaigning on behalf of that issue and just kind of rally around the flag, rally around the president. And um, Alice Paul and her organization refused to do that. The other women's suffrage organization tried to kind of 
find a balance between um, continuing to support women's suffrage, but really mostly giving themselves over to working for the war effort, hoping that they would be, women would be rewarded with um, uh, the, the vote at the end of the war. All right, Catherine, my question here would be, so ratification ultimately uh, takes place in 1920. Who Mm -hmm. are the major players, particularly within Congress, uh, within the Senate, that that lead, that sort of manage um, that process through to its successful conclusion? Well, you know, there is the... um uh, in, in the ratification process, sort of the, the famous story is about the state of Tennessee, which was one of these border states. I mentioned before how, how they, difficult it was to get support from the south um, and uh, from the southern states. And Tennessee was one of these border states where um, uh, it, it, it's, the, it's the final state that ratifies. And um, there's a you know there's a famous story about one of the anti-suffragists in the in the state legislature getting a letter from his mother um, telling him he needed to go in and change his vote and and vote in on in support of it. So that's that's a that's a famous story from from Tennessee. But also really important in that story was the um, NAACP because uh, Tennessee was a state which had a, you know, a pretty significant African-American population. And because it was a border state, it was a state where black men could vote. You know, it wasn't like Mississippi or Alabama. And so um, uh, Alice Paul uh, really, um, uh, uh, you know, worked with it, worked with the NAACP and urged them to, to get African-American men in Tennessee behind the women's suffrage amendment. And it was kind of a tricky thing because Alice Paul did not have the best reputation for having been an advocate of black women's voting. But in the case of that final state that it came down to, she really needed the support of of black men. All right. Well, it is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So, Dr. Rimpf, why do you think knowing about the 19th Amendment and its ratification is relevant in today's world? Um, well, because we, you know, today we are, we confront issues of access to voting, right? Um, and that, that's not, um, it's not an issue that has gone away. And I think, um, you know, one of the, uh, Lisa, Lisa Tetreau, who's, who's, a, who's a historian, um, has written about um, the right to vote. And one of the things that she points out is that we actually don't have a right to vote in the Constitution. What we have are amendments that um, define who has the right to vote in kind of negative ways so that um, the Reconstruction Amendments say you can't deny the right to vote on the basis of race. And the 19th Amendment says you can't deny the vote on the basis of um, sex. But they both leave by by defining voting negatively like that, rather than just sort of saying everyone has the right to vote. 
um, what it does is it opens up the possibility for denying the right to vote for all kinds of other reasons, right? So that's what happens with um, the ratification of the 19th Amendment is that you can't deny the right to vote on the basis of sex, but many, many, many women continue to not be able to exercise their voting, exercise voting rights because they're being denied the right to vote for other kinds of reasons. So it's, it's a kind of a limited way um, to think about voting rights. And I think that is um, quite, you know, quite relevant today. And it will be quite relevant in our elections this fall if we have, um, you know, difficulty um, gathering, in, in being in large gatherings in order to exercise the right to vote. And as you know, there's all of these campaigns to increase access to um, vote by mail um, to make it possible for more people to vote. Um, okay. So I, I think these whole questions of, of, of what it means to have the right to vote are very relevant today. Okay, when we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. This program, the award-winning Relevant or Irrelevant, is heard Friday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Central Time on KALA HD2 or 106.1 FM in the Quad City area. You can listen over the air or anywhere via TuneIn.com. To hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find Relevant or Irrelevant and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center. This concludes the 372nd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song of our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zapital. My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Catherine Rimp, Chair of History Department at the University of Missouri, who took time to t- talk with us about the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. The history buff for today's show was Brett Menard. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would also like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Pozzo Kulanava, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.